So walking down the beach is none other than James Douglas Morrison. And I said, hey, Jim, Jim, come on over here, man. Sat down. I said, what are you up to? And he said, well, tell you the truth, I've been writing some songs. And I said, whoa. He said, I'm up on Dennis Jacobs' rooftop looking out over the ocean at Venice Beach and writing songs. And I said, well, for God's sake, man, sing me a song. Sat down right here, dug his hands in, you know? And the sand was just kind of pouring out. And he kind of gritted his teeth and dug into it. And he said, this one's called Moonlight Drive. And he started to sing those words and it was haunted. I said, there's only one problem. What do we call the band? And he said, The Doors. Hello and welcome to another episode of Opening the Doors. I'm your host, Bradley Netherton, and joining us here, the first time being on the podcast, author of Roadhouse Blues, Morrison, The Doors, and The Death Days of the 60s, author Bob Batchelor. Nice to meet you, man. Nice to have you on. Thanks, Bradley. I'm super psyched to be here and can't wait to spend some time talking with you and talking about The Doors on this fantastic podcast. Yeah. And speaking of fantastic things, you know, your book, I mean, it's, it was an awesome read. I've, I've, I've told you off air that I've sort of maligned my copy. I don't know if I'm going to be able to trade it in at the local uh, five and dime to get any cash back for it, which I wouldn't anyway, but I've done, you know, a lot of great information in it. And, and I don't know if you can see sort of the yellow highlights is what I consider uh, historical information. And the pink was more, I guess, good suppositions or good, good thoughts by yourself. And I've marked this thing up, man. It's been a great read, a, very, a great resource. And I think it's definitely something different than, you know, reading uh, Jerry Hopkins' books, uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive, which that's a whole other story. I know a lot of fans malign that book, but it's important to the fandom. And, we, we, you know, one day we may talk about that, talk about the doors in the 80s. But this is definitely a different approach, I believe, to the doors. And so I just want to pr- appreciate the book, man. I want to definitely thank you for being on and just let you know that I genuinely do enjoy this book. It's definitely been a resource for me and everything, and especially with the podcast. Well, I appreciate it. You know, one of the things that I like to do and I in all my books when when I talk to my when people ask me what do you do I say I'm a cultural historian I like to tackle big topics and in my mind if you're looking at that sweet spot between the end of hippiedom to the awful dirty 70s the doors kind of symbolize that so what I wanted to do was not just tell all the myths and re- rehash all the folklore but actually bring a new Morrison to life reexamine that era because as you know a lot of people they never get to the 60s or 70s in their high school history classes or their college classes. There, There's a whole generation of readers out there that don't know much at all about the 60s. They don't know anything about the Doors past. So I thought, along with my publisher, Kyle Serafine at Hamilcar Publications, we just thought it's right now, time for re-examining Morrison. And so I appreciate the kind words. Hopefully, Hopefully there were a lot of pink tabs there because that means I did my job. Oh, there were there were definitely a lot of peak tabs there, but yeah, I mean it is a, it is definitely an interesting read. It's something that I think we're going to get into tonight. I'm going to open actually uh, talking about some of the uh, cultural things that I definitely think that your book co- your book sort of colored some of the info I got here. 
But today we're talking about the Doors in 65. 65, of course, is the year the Doors started, a, a big year for music. And in six short months, the six short months that the Doors are together, that there's so much that happens. And before, sometimes I think humans is, you know, we see patterns. And I sort of started seeing patterns here, maybe just subconsciously, where it seems like, and, I, and I'll get into this, there's like a point in the 60s, in 65 specifically, where in prior to the meeting on the beach, you know, that we'll talk about, it seems like things were sort of happening. And then after that, like that event is sort of like the hinge that sort of swing, but it sort of changes the way that the, that the 60s sort of play out, especially 65 and changes the whole, the whole route, I guess that, that, that happens, you know? Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you bring that up. It's when people think about the 60s, you really have to be specific with them. What 60s are you remembering? Because yeah. 62, 63 are totally different than 65, 66. And by 67, 68, 69, it's totally different again. So yeah. it's almost like three different distinct eras. So I, I really think that's interesting. That's a great point you brought up about how we we start to connect patterns across the larger society. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And one thing uh, Ray Manzarek brings up in his book specifically, when he talks about the meeting on the beach is that the stones and the Beatles were the two big groups at the time. The Beatles were the manis- manifestation of good is what he said. And the stones, of course, the <laughs> manifestation of evil. But I mean, you've got to look at that, at things like that. Like those were the two biggest groups, the the British invasion is sweeping through. And I think that the early sixties are sort of colored by that, by the Stones, by the British Invasion. Uh, one of my favorite groups, to me, the first, I guess Bill Ackers had the had the jazz instrumental he had, but it, it was really the, it was a song Telstar by the Tornadoes that really was the first, I guess, British Invasion hit to me before the Beatles. And uh, Joe Meek was the producer who in, was way ahead of his time, ended up committing suicide, and I think he killed his landlady too. I remember reading about it, but he was so ahead of his time and unfortunately, had an unfortunate in, ending but I think the early 60s are British invasion. And then as I mean, even at the end of 65, you have the Matrix Club opening. Jefferson Airplane forms as a group. And I think one of the uh, one of the members, Malin, I believe, is, is that his name? Is the He was the guitarist, did some work, uh, did some good songs. But he opened up the Matrix. And that's sort of the swing for the West Coast sound and the uh, opening up of the West and something Morrison talks about in the 67 uh, debut album, The West is the Best, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a shift there, cultural shift from July 4th to the 31st. I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones is number one. The fifth highest grossing movie of the year, uh, The Great Race, starring Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, and Natalie Wood, opened in theaters across the United States. And a bevy of new television shows that would go on to be considered classics would debut that year, including Hogan's Heroes, Lost in Space, The Wild Wild West, Green Acres, and I Dream of Jeannie. While juggernauts like Bonanza, Gomer Pyle, USMC, The Lucy Show, The Red Skelton Hour, The Andy Griffith Show, Bewitched, and The Beverly Hillbillies still dominated the primetime ratings share. And you had an interesting note about that in your book about Bonanza that I thought was interesting. You said that Bonanza was the number one rated show on television in 1967, the same time the doors exploded on the scene with The Light My Fire. How did Middle America rectify unrelated images, one, the exemplar of the new youth culture, and the Hollywood's repackaging of a mythic and mostly inaccurate past. And Bonanza ran from 59 to 72 or something like that. And in 65, it's a big, a big, you know, I think it was the top rated show in 67 is the top rated show. And it's almost like, here's where you see the generational gap is in music. You see the, the sort of the youth movement, but on the television, you see the, 
old guard still enjoying the you know the same old programs you know uh, but that was an interesting thing about your that you mentioned in your book yeah i think that the the youth movement in the decade is really coming headlong up against the forces of conservatism the forces of those in power and i would add one name to your list it's certainly the stones certainly the beatles and then bob dylan and yes, i yeah. don't think that you can count Dylan out in terms of his influence, not only on those other bands, but on the doors directly. So, you know, it's interesting. Television then seemed to lag behind a little bit. Hadn't picked up on the youth movement quite as much um, versus music. It will eventually, though. I mean, the corniness of the Batman and, you know, the Batman television show, yeah. some of the the other ways that, that the, the counterculture starts to seep in. But it really is, you know, when Hollywood elites or New York elites talk about flyover country between New York and, and Los Angeles, that really is a real thing, you know, not mm -hmm. in a derogatory sense, but it really is all the rest of the people. And so where are the impulses for somebody in the middle of Iowa or the middle of Texas or the middle of Minnesota? It's what they're seeing on television. And it very much was mainstream culture before the counterculture hit the, the, the front pages and the, and the nightly news. So yeah, a, interesting way to look, you know, you look at novels that were popular certain years, you look at television shows, and then look at music and what's happening with the doors when they're forming is this lyrical music is starting to become so important. And that, I think, brings Manzarek together with Morrison even more. In, the, in an era of lyricists, you need somebody who can write. Yeah, and I know you'll name, know the name of this book right offhand, but uh, one of the books, Morrison had an extensive library of books, and he eventually moves in with Ray and uh, Dorothy. And he had to send most of his books back to his parents. But, you know, we, we talk about that. And even you talk about the, the difference between the East and the West. And we could get into, I'd love to have you back on to get into the, you know, the scene clubs and the uh, the Cafe Wa of New York and sort of the, the different culture there compared to the clubs like the like the uh, Fillmore West, Avalon Ballroom, Winterland in San Francisco or in San Francisco, L.A., all those areas, you know, mixing in the Whiskey Go-Go. I think that's a conversation for another day, but I'm I'm just we will definitely talk about that down the road. But those epicenters have, I guess, these the tension really is building up across the country, and and they really start to explode at these epicenters. But before that, there's sort of this festering period. Uh, you have Lyndon Johnson sworn in for his first full term as president in January, and the first combat troops enter Vietnam in March. And you know you've had the first few protests. I think twenty five thousand people. For, you know, before July of uh, 1965 protests in Washington, D.C. And the racial, you know, boundaries are just getting pushed further and further, you know, wedging in between people. Malcolm X is assassinated in February 21st. And, you know, I'm from Alabama, so a lot of this, especially going to Selma and Montgomery visiting these sites and seeing, you know, where Bloody Sunday happened, where you had the first big clash between civil rights protesters and state police and, Martin Luther King Jr. leading people across the, the bridge, you know, having the 25,000 civil rights leaders and activists go this four-day journey and tra travel from Selma to Montgomery 
is so powerful. And then you look at things like NASA, you know, making up the ground in the space race and they launched their first two person crew into Earth's orbit and Ed White makes his first spacewalk. Man, it seems like the 60s, just so much is just squeezed in, you know? Yeah, I agree. The The 60s almost seem like you could break up each year into into little segments or every six or eight months, eight, eight, 10 months, certainly. Things just changed quickly because there was so much. As you said, it was as if decades of all these different forces were coming together like layers of rock and coal to to form diamonds really quickly and yeah. or you know maybe like t- tectonic plates coming together really fast and and what happens is that you have eruptions and and that's what was going on in the 60s and it was coming from every sector of america you know so people of color were were in the, the race conversation students were were finally protesting and acting out and it's political unrest you know it's not that long after jfk had been assassinated yeah the beatles are here the stones are here dylan's here so much so much of popular culture is fomenting all around the same time and it and it has a a tremendous impact and things are happening fast. Yeah. And right in the middle of it is these college kids from UCLA uh, going to film school, Ray, Ray Manzarek, Jim Morrison. You know, sometimes I think maybe not fabricated, but a, uh, a remembering later on, like pre doors, like maybe, you know, me and Jim are really close friends in college. And I, you know, I don't doubt that they were, or maybe that was a, Hey, they do, they do seem to run in the same circles. Jim showed up in his, uh, in his, you know, in his films that he shot at his house, and that's something we'll talk about later. But in May of uh, of 1965, Jim joins Ray for the first ever non-doors performance, but his first performance live at the Turkey Joint West. Joins him on stage. I think, depending on what story you want to listen to, uh, either he was he was just joining, came on stage because of a lot of other UCLA students. Because Ray, any time that they had a big gathering, you know, if there if the place wasn't really packed out, just to you know, have fun. Him and his group, Rick and the Ravens, would just invite people on stage. Jim comes on stage. One of the contributors to the podcast, Jim Cherry, has his book Doors Examined. Uh, what he mm. calls what he calls a raucous version of Louie Louie. Uh, and an alternate mm. version of this story is that Morrison may have been sitting in the back loudly calling the band to play it, and Manzarek invited him on stage. But Ray definitely always sort of kept his cool in those situations, and he always knew how to diffuse Morrison and how to handle situations like that. I mean, you talk about that in in your book was one of the one of the things where you mentioned that Ray's leadership cannot be overstated. This is on page seventeen of Roadhouse Blues, of course, your book. You say that Manzarek's leadership can't be overstated. Not only did he conceive of and launch the Doors' musical direction, but more critically, he knew he had the right personalities. Ray sensed traits in John and Robbie that he knew would work for the collective, just as he recognized the magic Jim brought to the band. The foresight to see, hey, this Rick and the Raven stuff's not going anywhere. They had a contract with Aura Records that they, I think Aura Records was tired of (laughs) pressing records that weren't selling. I think they did Mm -hmm. a Soul Train back with Geraldine and they did a Henrietta backed with Just For You. Harry Klutzmeyer uh, out of... uh he was in Manhattan Beach, and he was a local agent booker, and he actually got us over to World Pacific Records. Is this bizarre? Dick Bach and World Pacific Records, one of the hippest jazz labels on earth 
ever, the guy who recorded all of the West Coast sound and the guy who was the recorder of uh, Ravi Shankar. They had set up a little rock and roll division called Aura, A-U-R-A, Aura Records. Perfect, because Dick Bach was into the whole spirituality and Eastern mysticism. And uh, we went over there and auditioned for the guy uh, that uh, was running the rock and roll division, and uh, we were signed for three singles. We recorded right on 3rd Street. I mean, that was a recording studio in Los Angeles. It was on uh, 3rd Street. Man, I mean, Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan and Bud Shank and Shorty Rogers and all the West Coast cats were all there. I mean, uh, you know, Shelly Mann, all those guys recorded in that recording studio. That was Dick Bach's recording studio. And, you know, like, what an honor to play in a place like that. You know, I was aware of it. Of course, nobody else in the band knew anything about any of that kind of stuff. But, man, that was the whole, that was, that was where the West Coast, West Coast sound came from, and it came from Dick Bach. So what happens with Dick Bach, man, is Dick and I get to be, get to talking. Dick is a, a spiritual, psychedelic kind of guy. We came down to the studio to see us performing or playing a recording, and he said, very nice, boys, very nice. You know, he wasn't concerned one way or the other about the rock and roll aspect of the whole thing. And we got to talking about spiritual matters and about LSD, trying to figure out, you know, why don't I have these blissful experiences like I had? Why have I been having these bummer experiences? And Dick said to me, you know what you ought to do, man? He said, because I saw the Ravi Shankar records and feel like, felt I could speak to him about this sort of thing. And he said, you ought to get involved. There's, a, there's a, an Indian guru who is setting up a program here in Los Angeles. His name is Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the Maharishi. But anyway, they talked with our records and basically said, hey, we, we want to get out of this and, and sort of do something else and record this demo. That way y'all save y'all the hassle, save us the hassle. And they agreed to do that. But not before the Rick and the Ravens opened for Cher later and Sonny and Cher. And they, they had a, I think they had a contractual agreement to have five people on stage they were down somebody. They said, hey, Jim, just come play an unplugged guitar on stage. And so hmm. Jim gets up there and just sort of mimics mom's playing a guitar. And he called that the uh, the easiest money he ever made. So uh, an interesting little history there before we get to the meeting. Sometimes I think about if Jim's on stage, not, not many people there at all probably witnessed this, 15, 20, maybe, maybe more than that. But this brand new club that's just opening up and all of a sudden Jim comes on stage and does this version of Louie Louie and nobody probably thought anything about it, but they saw like the birth of a rock star pretty, I mean, it, far from being polished, you know, a diamond in the rough is probably, a, a, you know, an understatement. Yeah. I think when I uh, look back on that and imagine that scene, it must've been pretty amazing. Morrison must've been drunk because oh, yeah. when he went on stage later, in the early gigs, he always was back to the crowd mm -hmm. because he was so petrified about facing the audience. So I can't imagine when I think about my own college experience and, and going to see bands who were upcoming, they'd have friends on the stage and there'd be there'd be shenanigans going going around. And, and the more booze that was involved, the happier people got. Yeah. And so I think, you know, in that era uh, where they're college students and Manzarek's having some success with Rick and the Ravens, it's probably a pretty party atmosphere. Oh, yeah. And Morrison is probably just jumping up and having a good time. And, and 
he's not the lizard king back then. And that's something I think people, they, they think Morrison like emerged fully sprung as, you know, the young lion photograph, but in college, he was a little overweight. He didn't Mm -hmm. have the cool haircut. He was shy. He was kind of nerdy. He was also drunk a lot. So I think it was a Morrison that we wouldn't recognize today, but you see the inklings and certainly you know, when you talk about Ray being the glue, he saw something in Morrison that seemingly nobody else saw. So pretty amazing um, foresight on Manzarek's part. Yeah. And so here we are. He hasn't seen Jim for a while, probably since one of these gigs or since Jim left film school. And all of a sudden we have this meeting on the beach, you know, Ray and Jim meet, you know, it's the this July afternoon. I'm sure everybody's seen, everybody's heard the account in some form or another. Uh, in Ray's book, he and, and that's the interesting part. We only have really two people's perspective on this. We don't have anybody else's perspective, and you really don't have a whole lot of gems besides, I think, one interview he talked about. Was it Sally Stevenson? I think he talked in an interview and barely mentioned it, but said it was a tale in itself and all this. But really, the main the main part of it comes from Ray. He talks about Jim being this blue god and and sort of seemingly you know coming down the the waves. And I think in his book uh, in his book Light My Fire, he talks about him walking along the water and sort of splashing this water up, but the iridescent backlighting sort of makes it seem like he's like Krishna creating diamonds or something like that. <laughs> but, yeah. and, and you know, that's Ray being Ray. Uh, and, and you talk about this a little bit in your book is, is how much of this is, uh, you, I think you call it counterfactual history. Why, why don't you just, how about we start there? What is counterfactual history? And we'll work our way from there. Sure. Counterfactual history is just looking back and saying, what if? So I don't know if you read Marvel Comics when you were a kid or younger, but my favorite series growing up was this series called What If? So they'd be like, what if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four? What if the Avengers never formed? These kind of things. And it really sparked my love for history in a a very strange way. Um, So I really think that Count, you don't have to just write about, okay, so what if the South won the Civil War? But counterfactual history, you can say, okay, let's kind of reverse engineer what actually happened, what could have happened, and how does that then give us a new picture, particularly if we look at all the different pieces and kind of pull them together. So that's a kind of a a basic understanding of counterfactual history. And I think it's really interesting when you look at the doors. Because if you really scope out what was being said and what was said, as you outlined, the stories don't always add up. And so when I started thinking about that, I thought to how popular Marvel is and everybody loves the origin story. You know, how many different, how many, how many Spider-Man movies alone have we had in the last 20 years that the origin story has been the primary driver? And so I thought, well, I'll look at the Doors origin story because the Beatles origin story, kind of interesting. The Stones origin story kind of gets a little more mythic. And then the Doors origin story gets really mythic. So I yeah. thought it'll be interesting to look at this and, and see, see what, can we, what can we find out from looking at this, uh, this record and, and then seeing and picking around the, the edges of it a little bit. I know if you're listening to Doors podcast, you've heard it, but I think it's obligatory to sort of, hey, this is how it goes, and you know, do the do the same old song and dance. 
So, you know, Jim's walking down the beach. He runs into Ray, bumps into Ray, and we'll talk about that in a second, too, the the uh, the vernacular used in some other interviews. But so, and this is from Ray's book. He says, I'm sitting on the beach thinking what I'm going to do with my life, and who comes walking down the beach but the shaman himself, the transformation. Jim transformed himself. He went inside a cocoon and came out absolutely gorgeous. He'd lost almost 30 pounds. He was li- living on a friend's rooftop ingesting massive quantities of certain psychedelic substances and, and didn't eat. He was living off the baby fat and he was approximately 165, 170 pounds at UCLA and then went down to maybe 135. Six feet tall, lean, hard. His hair had grown. He looked like David. He looked like Michelangelo's David. I said, God, you look great, man. What are you doing? He said, nothing. I just haven't been eating. And he said, I've been writing some songs. And then Ray, songs. Uh, and and then oftentimes, you know, you have the follow-up to that where he says, sing him, sing him to me, man. And of course, Jim's like, oh, I don't want to sing. Ray, I'm a little shy. He's like, Dylan can't sing. You can sing. And so he, we get the next part, which is he sings in Moonlight Drive. And that's usually where the story ends. But in Ray's book, he talks about how throughout, like he, he they apparently are there for an extended amount of time because he goes through that. He does Summer's Almost Gone, sings that to Ray. And he oh. said, Ray is so into it. And he starts, Ray just starts patting the, the rhythm out on his lap. Oh. And they start talking, they go over that song, they go over, you know, other songs. And then this is something that you brought up too, that I think is important to the whole story. I think Ray says it mostly as a joke, but it could be taken different ways depending on how you want to look at it. He says, man, let's start a band and let's make a million bucks. And I think that's another sticking point to the whole story. But I mean, (laughs) as far as mythological origins, man, this is, uh, I mean, Marvel comics are great, but man, this is like a Greek God origin story or something, you know? Yeah. It's much bigger and and more interesting when you start to pull the pieces at it. Ray certainly always had a stake in being the band's main PR person. I mean, that's what he spent basically most of the rest of his life doing. And quite happily doing it. It's it's very interesting. But when you start to think about it, strip away the story that we know. Ray lives on the beach. That had to be well known. They were close enough yeah. friends to know. Jim certainly knew where Ray lived. Then you have, at some stories, you have Ray meeting up, like Ray stumbling onto Jim. Other times it's Jim stumbling onto to Ray just sitting there. But in the piece that you read from from Ray's book, he has all this added knowledge. Like yeah. he's padding the story out with all this stuff, like he had transformed and all these things. So if you hadn't seen a guy for, say, six months, eight months, and you see him, your your reaction is going to be different, especially if you don't know him that well. Versus all this stuff that that Ray kind of compounds on top of, like he yeah. he intuits Jim's personality in this instant of meeting. So what I thought is, let's tear this apart and think about it. Rick and the Ravens is successful enough to get a deal. Okay, so like that's everybody's main goal, right? Just to like if you're a writer to get a book deal is like that's your main yeah, goal yeah. when you're young. So good enough to get a deal. They're not good enough to make hit records, but they're good enough to get a deal. They're well-known. They play gigs. That's all you need to be successful when you're young and in a band. Jim knows this. He's clearly been a fan. He's jumped up on stage. He's performed with the band. Ray is a personality. At that moment in time, Ray is a successful musician. 
Jim is a college grad who's afraid to go to New York or for some reason chooses not to go to New York to, to pursue his film career. If he is hanging out on uh, rooftops, a lot of peeping Tomism going on back then too, which is something yeah. we could go, we could probably spend an hour just talking about Jim as peeping Tom that summer. If you were writing songs or hearing songs in your head, or in that summer, you're hearing the explosion of the Beatles, you're hearing the Rolling Stones, you're turned on by music, and you're a poet, and something clicks in. If you're Jim Morrison and you've been writing songs, who's the one person that you know? Like, who's your connection? Yeah, yeah. Ray Manzarek. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm writing, a, like, if I were 24, 22, I'm, I write a short story, and I'm walking down the beach, and I'm thinking, how am I going to get this short story published? And I happen to know a writer who's already publishing short stories. Yeah. I'm going to find that person. And I'm going to say, hey, <laughs> can you help me? And mm -hmm. so I think there was much more calculation. But as the story and the doors also rewrote a lot of the stuff, you know, like Morrison saying yeah. that he, he was an orphan, you know, in their first biography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think when you pull all this stuff apart and then start to piece it back together again, that's where the counterfactual history becomes important. Because yeah. you can't always take people at their word. And the story changed enough that it seems plausible to me that there, there was much more to, to the origin story. And I think rather than saying, you know, these guys were lying or whatever, like they're young guys. They, wanna, they do want to make a million dollars. You know, Dylan wanted to make a million dollars, too, and wanted to have hit records. He just would downplay that and then disregard it as he actually became more famous. Yeah. Cause, cause <laughs> so you, you can, can, cause you already have yeah. it. You know? Plenty of, plenty of folks go back on their early quotes when they're coming up the ladder, once they've hit the, hit the top of the mountaintop. So yeah. I, I think it's a, it's an interesting way to, to look at, at some of the doors history, particularly this, this early period. Yeah. And you know, something else interesting. So I, I refer back to Jim Cherry, but he, he, he definitely has helped me find guests and stuff. His book, uh, he, he had a similar supposition as you did, but he, he almost took it a step further. He seems to, I'll, I'll read part of his, his excerpt from doors examined. So he sort of has the same counterfactual thing, but did it happen exactly that way? Was the meeting on the beach chance? I don't think so. I think Jim Morrison had some pretty clear intentions to try to start a rock band and Jim knew Ray was in a band. He and other film school friends had gone to see Ray's band, Rick and the Ravens, at the Turkey Joint. Jim was even performed with the band, as you mentioned, and he even half-jokingly said to Dennis Jacobs that he wanted to call a, have a band called The Doors Open and Closed. Clearly, starting a band was on Morrison's mind. When Manzarek filmed his student film induction, Morrison appeared in party scenes, and that was filmed at, at uh, Manzarek's beach house. Jim knew not only where Ray lived, but the general area where Ray might have hung out. How many times that July had Jim Morrison walked by and passed that part of the beach, hoping Ray would be there. You mentioned this in your book, jobless, you know, tripping on acid every day, not a lot to do. So why not just walk by every single day in June, in July, you know, in however long until you see Ray again to see if you can kick up the band. And he also talks about the, the interesting point that this is this, the first week, the second week of July, this is sort of, slated to happen like july 8th because i imagine if it was something jim said as well when i talked to him is that it would 
if it did happen like July 4th or something like that, it would have been brought up. I know Ray would have probably added that to the story. So it most likely happened somewhere around July 8th. But that stretch of period, like, you know, Jim dies July 3rd, 1971. So it's like an exact six-year period that the band is like from inception to, mm-hmm. you know, the the first member dying or, you know, the most important, I'm not going to say most important member, but one of the biggest contributing members and something that just I don't think the group could recover from. It's just interesting to think about that way. That was Jim Morrison going on the beach every day looking for Ray. And I mean, it's counterfactual history. Stuff like that is very interesting to me, very intriguing. Uh, when you when you basically break it down like that, and I never thought about it that way, the counterfactual part of it, I didn't think about breaking it down backwards. That was an interesting concept that your book sort of introduced me to, and something that I sort of thought that I've I've been doing, but I've never really thought about it. That way. Yeah, I think that when there's an intention to doing it, it can actually lead to stronger analysis. I like the way he broke it down in his book. Twenty two years old. You're living on rooftops. You're you're going to go to the beach. I mean, that's why part of the reason why you're in uh, California. Morrison is a, a kind of a, a a warm guy. You know, he he goes from yeah. Alexandria, Virginia, to Florida to California. You know, he's he's a guy who's going to be at the beach if he is slimming down. I mean, you're a young guy. You're good looking. What are you going to do? You're going to go to the beach and look at girls. That's what, that's what Jim Morrison is, is doing. His girlfriend at the time lived at the beach, lots of interesting things going on at that time. And maybe it was happenstance and it was two old buddies meeting up again out of the blue, but, but it seems to me less likely, but you know, then the second piece of it, which once the, I did the counterfactual, what it led me to think about was what was happening in music at the time. And that led me to be thinking more about Dylan and the Rolling Stones. Yeah. And we're out of the Louie Louie phase. We're out of like crooner stage. We're into lyric stage. And if you're Ray, if you're Ray Manzarek and you say to yourself, we can't have hit records if we're just going to do covers, we need somebody to write songs. So how yeah. was it in that instance, Morrison starts singing to him and he just, some, something lit his fire right then, like a light bulb went off and Ray Manzarek saw his entire future laid out in front of him on a guy who had never really sung before and had no training as a, as a singer. That's an amazing piece too. So what the counterfactual did for me was open up a new way of thinking about Ray and thinking about Jim within the context of what was going on in the broader world of music and, and, and that kind of thing. I'm not sure what your position is on this. And it's something that I don't know. I don't bring up a lot of guess on this podcast. Cause I don't know if it's as practical, but Ray, he has mentioned in passing sometimes, but I don't think it's ever been said outright. He has mentioned himself as a psychic of sorts. Like he has some, hmm. And of course, maybe that's Ray being Ray, hundred percent. But even John talks about how, and and John Densmore is the next to join the group, and and he's really John Densmore strikes me as the tepid member. He's the youngest of the group. He's still in college, you know, and and he's very underspoken, and and he's just sort of a lot of new experiences for him. He especially if you read his book, talking around this time. And I don't know, I just find that so interesting. The dynamic, like he's the next member, and then I think Robbie sort of slots in sort of right above John, but more sort of laid back maybe, you know. And even though Robbie is the youngest, I don't think it really plays off that way. Yeah, let's go through the points 
one by one. Ray Manzarek. He's at enough of a dead end. Like he's clearly said many, many times, I was sitting on the beach, looking out at the waves, trying to figure out what the hell to do with my life. Yeah. Yes. We've all been in that point. Some days I still feel like I'm in that point. (laughs) And so you're Ray, you've got, you've got your degree. You know, you don't want to be a part of straight society. You have already tried a couple of times. You're not going to make it. What are you going to do? And so he's desperate. He's desperate. His wife, his then girlfriend, soon to be wife is, is basically paying their bills. Living on the beach was no great thing back then. It wasn't like it is today. Like that, you know, they were just renting a little shack on the, you know, block off the beach. Now is Ray Manzarek a bit of a psychic? I don't know. He was willing to bet his whole future on this scrawny kid who comes walking down the beach. That to me, there had to be something there. Now, I guess it hinges on whether or not you think that there are psychics in the world. And yeah. and I'm going to tell you, I'll give you, maybe it's more personal than than I should be on a podcast, but it's okay. I do believe that there are certain people that have sensibilities that others are not connected to. Yeah. And I know people in my immediate future or my immediate circle that I very much trust who have told me they've met people and had a, like a, an electric spark just meeting them. And I think some people, when they say they fall in love at first sight, they, that's what they mean. Like they're having a psychic experience with another person. I think some people have that experience, whether it's male or female, I've talked to people of, of varying, you know, persuasions who met somebody and just instantly quote unquote fell in love. That must have happened to some degree in that moment. So I bu- I buy that. If Rayman's Eric saying he's a bit of a mystic or a bit of a psychic, I'm all in with with Ray being a bit of a psychic. With Densmore, he was seen he seemed a bit skeptical in the beginning. He loved to play, hadn't been around rock and roll that much, also didn't have a lot to lose, but is a hell of a drummer. Densmore's so interesting to me. I, I can't figure that guy out, like, because he's so laid back now. He's changed so much. He's always portrayed as a little bit uptight, you know, when he was yeah. young. But, you know, I don't know. It, I think maybe it's just maybe he was the least outgoing of, of them all, less flashy, certainly. Robbie Krieger, to me, is like the, if you've met, like, California guys, he seems to me like the typical California dude, just yeah. born and bred, like, laid back completely. He's the youngest once he is the youngest of the four but he and he comes in last, but so such powerful playing like you, you can't yeah, yeah. the doors aren't the doors without Krieger and you know Krieger's kind of wishy-washy now about certain things too though though his his memoir was fantastic oh amazing yeah probably you know, the best Dens- of the three I would say yeah Densmore's book you know his new book on creativity is fantastic yes, his, yeah yeah. His book was the first one out, you know, then they had the falling out, but you know, all the stuff, but it's, it's amazing that they're able to pull this together. But the biggest leap of faith is Manzarek accepting Morrison. Yeah. I mean, who does this? Like you've never even heard, you get a guy, basically a guy auditions for 20 minutes yeah. and you're going to, you're willing to give, like, you're willing to give up your future. Like Manzarek's been playing in bands for 
at least five years. Yeah. And you're willing yeah. to, you know, give it all up in, in a, what, what's the most they could have been at the beach half hour. You yeah. know, Not it's way. amazing, isn't it? You know, it's an amazing set of circumstances. It is. And you know, the, sometimes I just get a visual and I guess we're talking about Manzarek being a psychic. I probably won't say it on the podcast, but if you want me to, I've got an interesting connection. Somebody who's psychic, very close to me. But if you walk into a casino and you see somebody putting all their chips on, you know, black 16 or something on roulette, either he's very desperate or he knows something you don't. And if he hits, he's, he's, <laughs> you know, he's a psychic. If he misses, oh, well, man, that's just a guy down on his luck. This didn't, didn't cash in right. So it could be either or. But Manzarek apparently believes in it enough. He moves him in his apartment the next day. I think he's going to move him in that night, but he didn't. But so he moves him in the next day, gives him Morris in their room because I think that uh, Morrison already had a heater and a heated blanket and, and they needed, and so they went ahead and, or he had a heated blanket. And so him and Dorothy slept in, Ray and Dorothy slept in the living room near the heater because, you know, Jim can't have too much, you know, they need something. But, and he just, as Dorothy goes to work, I think she cleans computer tapes, which I thought was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just works with Morrison. He sort of takes Morrison under his wing and becomes like the equivalent of sort of like a vocal coach, uh, you know, even to some extent a life coach. I don't, I don't know if that was even a term. That probably wasn't even a term then. But there's not a piano here. So they start sort of going off to the basement of the Schoenberg Music Hall at UCLA. Have a lot of, and this is something, you know, it's very reminiscent of when I, I remember I was in a band in college. And at our local community college I went to, uh, to start out with, they had these rooms of music you could go in. I mean, my band, we'd go in there and we'd play if we could. And uh, it's it's cool to see like these sort of connections, but they would have p- just a piano in there. And so he would go in there and Dorothy was at a lot of these rehearsals and it's just Ray and Jim knocking out songs. Ray had had some bummer trips and it was recommended to him by producer Dick Bach that he should attend a lecture series put on by the Maharishi. And he and Dorothy actually went to those. Guess who else is in that course of six lectures at the Maharishi's Meditation Center or at somebody's house. It was actually at somebody's house in Pacific Palisades. In that course of approximately 20 other people are John Densmore and Robbie Krieger, drummer and guitar player of The Doors. Is that weird? (laughs) So I went up to John and I said, listen, I hear you're a drummer. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I said, I'm putting a rock and roll band together. I got this buddy of mine, man. He's just a great writer. And we got some great material. I mean, I, I want to do, I want to do poetry and rock and roll. You know, like poetry and jazz. You know, and I want to have it kind of like a jazz-based thing. He said, "Jazz." He said, "Are you into Coltrane?" I said, "Coltrane, man, I love Coltrane." He said, "Elvin Jones is my idol." I, and he said, "What about Miles?" I said, "Miles, you know, I want to. I'm Bill Evans." You know, he said, "Man, Philly Joe, ding dun dung, crack ding dun dung." I love Philly Joe, and I said, "Well." God, I mean, this is this is going to work out great. I mean, here's a guy who knows his jazz, man. But we're going to do rock and roll. He said, cool. He said, you know, I mean, I'm not good enough to be a real jazz drummer. I said, well, hell, I'm not good enough to be a real jazz piano player. I just love the stuff. If we could incorporate that into rock and roll, I said, you know, no one's doing that, man. My buddy Jim has got these great lyrics, man. They're very poetic, and we could do all kinds of stuff around it. He said, that sounds great. Let's get together. I said, yeah, we got to get a guitar player, too, though. And he points over at Robbie. He said, well, see that guy, man? He's a guitar player. I said, what? <laughs> Eventually, I believe that he, John receives a call late in August asking if he'd like to audition. 
and going back to Ray being a psychic, John agrees and he meets Jim, you know, this guy who Ray says had never sung before, but hey, this is our lead singer, but he's never really sung anything. And I know John's probably sitting here thinking, what, what have I gotten myself into? But, uh, but he, you know, John connects with the lyrics and he goes through the audition and Ray uh, seems to indicate that he has the job, but he, he said he would call, and this is from John's book. He'd call John in a few months because the time wasn't right yet. And, and John thought, gee, man, that's pretty cosmic far out. And of course, Ray calls less than, you know, a few weeks from then. I go down to Ray Manzarek's parents' garage in Manhattan Beach for a jam session. There was this guy in the corner, real shy. Uh, Ray says, this is Jim, the singer. He's never sung, but uh, check out these lyrics. Cars crawl past, I'll stuff with eyes. Streetlights shed their hollow glow. Your brain seems bruised with numb surprise. Still one place to go. Whew. I'd like to try drumming to that. And so John's in the band. He was, re- I think, originally in the Psychedelic Rangers with Robbie. Robbie ended up being in the, in the group called the Clouds and all that. So John sort of is here, and, and this is where John and Jim really get to know each other because John is sort of Jim's passed off on John as, Hey, you're the valet guy. But so Uh this is where John and sort of Jim meet. And I think the first, a funny story where John talks about, he valets Jim to his, uh, he said it happened on July 18th on Bastille day, but I don't think the math adds up on that. Maybe he's a hundred percent right on that. And I'm wrong, but he takes Jim to his draft interview and he says, he, Uh and Jim says, Hey, you know, come back, come back in a couple hours and I'll be done. And John's like, Jim, man, I, I I did mine. It takes all day. You're going to be in there all day. And I'm, and you know, it's not going to be later. He said, no, John, just come back in a couple hours and I'll have everything wrapped up. So John's like, okay, you know, man, whatever. So John goes, gets lunch and he comes back and Jim's like, Hey, I'll be waiting outside. So John's like, well, I'll go grab lunch. I'll drive back by. And you know, just to say that I did, he drives back by and sure enough, there's Jim standing out front of the, the draft office. And he's like, man, what happened? He's and you know, Morrison, he says, John says that he had a sheepish or a wolfish grin is what he said. And he says, uh, what did you get? And he said, uh, I got a Z classification. There's no Z classification on the draft board, <laughs> but of course, Jim never elaborates on anything. And I think they continue driving and that's pretty much the end of that. Since you brought it up, another counterfactual I just thought of, I read somewhere that Morrison's dad, who would later become Admiral Morrison, yeah. was involved in a lot of um, intelligence activities. Yeah. And so what if Morrison walked into that draft board, said to the guy in charge, hey, call my dad, who is a, a Navy officer at this number, and this will all be cleared up in five minutes. And the guy did that. And Morrison's dad basically said, yeah, you're not drafting my son. Oh, what, and that you, was that. So I just thought of that right now. So, <laughs> you, you know, that would, I mean, George Morrison had to have a plan and I don't think he ever really elaborated on anything that he said. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's the most, man. it's the most logical conclusion versus what else he could have done. If he would have done or acted, you know, quote unquote insane or tried to get that classification he would have had to do something like people who got that classification had to do some kind of crazy antic to, to make it happen. So to me, I don't know. 
that that could be totally conspiratorial and maybe it's just that i've been reading about you know some of the conspiracy theories about morrison's death but that's for another podcast hey, we'll get to, it we'll get to that another time <laughs> man you're well i guess i know I've, I've actually already been planning an episode on that i guess i know who i got my co-host now i'll go right across from me for that one because there are some interesting things uh, and Jim Morrison had written the last letter to his father, I think the month, a, a little bit prior. So I wonder if he even maybe name dropped him and said, Hey, yeah. Or I don't know how, yeah, man, there, there's a lot to that. Yeah. We can, okay. Yeah. I'm just gonna, <laughs> that, that, that was a bomb that, that this sort of, <laughs> sort of I, something I'd have to think about. So, um, Oh, so I'll just, I'll just move on to this. Cause I'm, I'm just going to keep fat and just sort of thinking about that. But all that said, you know, we're working up to, you know, this, this one month period, you know, this two month period where they're practicing and they, they start rehearsing and sort of getting things hammered out before eventually they start to record the demo tapes or uh, go to a small LA studio to record them now, on September 2nd, 1965. And that's another part of Ray's story that I find interesting where every time he tells the story, Manzarek has like this baritone voice, but that's not mm. really the voice that he has in the demo tapes, I would say. Nope. It's, it's a, it's a lot tinnier than it, than it becomes. That's for sure. It's a, it's a guy finding his voice. That's, that's 100% true. Yeah. And I was, and I actually may have, I got a friend who does, has a pretty successful YouTube channel or somebody I knew from high school. And I thought about examining the vocals with him, but the doors demos, I, I, I did do an edit. So just, just of moonlight drive, because I found, I found it interesting. lot of softer vowel sounds a lot of uh yeah a wispier tone to it you know uh, a more vapid sort of tone to it i would say something something that i think he's definitely not known for later no i think that that voice to me is a person who is has no confidence he's singing yeah. out of almost like the top of his throat rather than the middle of his chest yeah and so there's there's no depth to it there's no the the if you just put your hand on your chest and you feel the vibration there's no vibration in what morrison did in that because i think he has no confidence but here's the edit i did of uh i have a friend who does the he separates the tracks using the atmos uh mixtures and i i mix the vocals to the actual release to the original demos just to see the 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 difference to make let's swim to the moon uh-huh. Let's climb through the tide Surrender to the waiting worlds That lap against our side Nothing left open And no time to decide We'll step into a river On our Moonlight drive. Mm-hmm. Man, let's swim to the moon. 
tried. You reach your hand to hold me, but I can't be your guide. It's easy. I don't love you as I watch you. And then that's him just eating the eating the microphone right there. But man, yeah. he, he's a lot more, you know, like you said, from his chest. It seems like before it rolls off the top of his mouth. Here mm-hmm. he's full chested, more crooner. He has he even has a bit where his the other it's very wispy. The the notes sort of almost fade out into obscurity and just get smaller and smaller. On these notes, he's he's holding he's got a such a great natural vibrato to his voice that I don't think he can even really help when he, you know, just the ending, you know, when he, when he's just able to capture that and there's so much between, you know, building up and, and I think 65 is a small portion of that. I think he got a lot of confidence in 65, but by the end of 65, I don't think as a singer, he's grown as much as he would in 66 when they get those whiskey gigs, when they get the London gig, you know, London fog gig. Yeah. And, I agree. So we have that, and it's recorded on, you know, there's six songs. The six songs, of course, are Moonlight Drive, Hello, I Love You, Tomorrow's Almost Gone, My Eyes Have Seen You, End of the Night, and Insane, which Insane ends up on Celebration of the Lizard. But, you know, all these songs end up making up a lot of the first two albums, end up being on the first two albums with Hello, I Love You, of course, being on Waiting for the Sun. And this is John's recounting of the events when they recorded the demo. I arrived at the studio a half hour early to set up my three-piece Gretsch drum set. My anticipation was peaking on the drive over, but when I saw Ravi Shankar's group packing up in the large recording room, my pulse quickened even more. I felt strangely giddy at that moment. Here I was in the same space with the musicians I had been admiring from a distance. I watched Alaraka, Ravi's drummer, pack up his little Indian drums. They looked much simpler to Mike than my drums, but I knew they were much more complex to play. Dick Box said goodbye to the Indian musicians, leaving in their colorful saris. He asked what he could do to help. I want to be close to the piano, I said with a slight trepidation. This was my first recording session. Who was I to tell the producer where to set up? He shrugged, no problem, and pointed to an area in the curve of the grand piano, in the pocket. That way I was nearer to Ray. I was pleasantly surprised that Ray and I had a lot of the same favorite jazz musicians, and he was the one I wanted to connect to. I looked around at the acoustic walls of the business-like room. As I set up my kit, acoustic tiles with millions of little holes in them to absorb the sound. You didn't want any echo in the recording room. You could add that later. I knew that much. Ray and Dorothy arrived with Jim, and shortly thereafter, Rick and Jim Manzarek walked in. Within hours, using only one or two takes, we had cut six sides. Moonlight Drive, End of the Night, Summer's Almost Gone, Hello, I Love You, Go Insane, and My Eyes Have Seen You. It's done very quickly, everything live. Bach was a low-key character who had produced West Coast jazz, and you don't tell jazz musicians how to play. So he hardly said anything. Before we knew it, the session was over, and we were back on the street. We had our own acetate with six songs. Ray took it under his arm, and he and Dorothy and Jim slipped into their yellow bug. Ray shouted through the window that we would start shopping it around, and the record companies over the next few days. Jim, having heard his voice on the tape for the first time, was beaming from the back seat. So they record this. Nothing really comes of it. And Robbie's not here. 
and uh, they end up playing a Harbor Cruise event that is sponsored by the Pioneer Club at the Golden Circle on October 14th. And, you know, not really big, big thing. Robbie eventually comes on, finishes the quartet in October of 65. And he is actually with them a lot during the Schoenberg Music Hall when they're, when they're doing it. And they eventually move to, I think, Hank Olgan's. And it's located on Santa Monica near 5th Street. And his house is just this rented shack behind this commercial building housing the general adjustment bureau. And so here they are just sort of jumping from place to place and, and putting in time, you know, part of that, I know we talk about the 10,000 hours. I'm sure everybody's heard of the 10,000 hours it takes to be like a master of your craft, but here they are just putting in, you know, a few of that 10,000 hours. And after six years, I think I'm, what was the math on that? I think they end up being together like 55,000 hours. That six, six year period is like 55,000 hours. So, uh, you know, about 10,000 a piece. If you, of course I know they're doing it all together and then, then some, but here they are, man, they end up playing for, uh, they, they have this big UCF UCLA film school event where they're screening different movies, especially if yours picked, of course, Morrison's not picked. He got a very poor grade on that Rays is there. And, and, you know, instead of, uh, having anything, he wants them to play, you know, getting more reps. And even though it's like a, a little acapella thing, you know, it's just an instrumental I think Jim plays like the tambourines or maracas or it's just more of that just playing and they start to solidify as a group. And I don't know, there's a lot of growth here. I think that happens. Robbie's parents are very supportive of this time. They allow him to practice at their house and they eventually, uh, you know, Robbie lives in the Pacific Palisades. They are the upping, you know, they're, they're definitely the well-to-do family of the group. Mm -hmm. Eventually when Ray needs a piano bass after he sees it actually at the end of 65, he sees it. And one of the rehearsals they go to or one of the events, one of the clubs they audition for, of course, get rejected from, but they, he sees the piano bass. And so Robbie's parents say, Hey, we'll, you know, Robbie asks his parents, Hey, we'll give you a loan. And his dad's like, we'll give you a loan on behalf of the band, but y'all better pay it back. And all this, of course, you know, he never, they never paid it back, but they get the piano bass to fill out the sound. All that being said, Jim turns 22 on December 8th and he's beginning to sort of have more authority, more confidence. He's still not the Jim that we know and love. It would take a little bit of time for that, but every day just brings he just he'll bring little crumpled pieces of paper to rehearsals with coffee stained napkins, with these incredible lyrics just formulating them into songs, and discontinuously the band gets tighter and tighter. And in between there, you know Ray's parents get him a little gig, I think, at his job at the Hughes Aircraft Company, and and they seemed very, I guess, non-receptive to him because they had I think they had to play more jazz standards. At that time, and then, but then, at the end of the year, on December thirty first, they play a gig at Ray, at Robbie's parents' house for a group of friends. They do a lot of covers, they do some originals, and they get a really good reception. And I think this is a good building moment for the group. It's something where they feel like, hey, we're we're actually playing in front of these guys, and they actually seem to genuinely enjoy it. And it's not something that we you know we feel like people are just we're background. At the end of the night, Jim tries to impress a girl, the Isaacsons daughter i think and he flips a quarter up in the air it comes down he swallows it whole and just jim being jim but man there's so much here there's not a lot but there's so much at the same time what do you think we we went through sort of a whirlwind of stuff there at the end but as they get tighter and tighter and uh, as things keep going on and and uh they keep working together what what do you think this time period like if you're robbie you're the last member in. What are you thinking when you come in and you've already got this sort of somewhat group that are working on songs? I mean, wh- where do you think 
each member was individually or where do you think they are in the headspace? Like, do you think they think this is going okay? You know, I think the fact, and Robbie said it, that the fact that, that uh, Rick and the Ravens had a, had a, a contract meant a lot to him that solidified in his mind that they had something. I, I think what we potentially undervalue is how kind of locally famous Manzarek was. Manzarek wasn't just a kid like the rest of them. Manzarek was a real, you know, air quotes, real musician. And he had a little bit of fame. And having a little bit of fame as a regional musician in Los Angeles, California is a big deal. And so he's able to mobilize these other three and they all looked up to him kind of as a big brother. And he clearly was, as you said earlier, the glue of the band and was able to bring these personalities, not only see that they what they brought to the band individually, but how they would fit in together. You know, for Robbie, Ray is a blues man and Robbie loves playing kind of bluesy jazz. Densmore loves jazz as well. So that as a trio, they have this in common and they're probably thinking if we can just apply our jazz theory to rock, we have something. They had to have been seeing bits and pieces of magic, not only from Morrison and the lyrics, but when they started to get tight as a threesome, that had to really bolster all their uh, feelings about what was potentially, you, because you can hear it now in, and you hear it on the first album. There's no other band like The Doors. You hear yeah. that, you the first three notes, you know it's The Doors. And that didn't just form like that formed over, like you said, over thousands and thousands of hours in that truncated period that you just laid out from the fall to the, to the end of the year. And that is really amazing. I'm kind of getting goosebumps thinking about it. I think each one of them saw just enough in what was happening, the sparks that were happening. And then Ray as the glue big brother that they looked up to and they believed in him. And that gave particularly Morrison the confidence to become a real singer and start to blossom. Yeah. And the, at one point they take this, they take the, they, they got rejected a lot from gigs. I think mostly due to their bass player. They didn't have Patty Sullivan mm-hmm. played on the demo. Of course, uh, I saw some comment where Bill Siddons had said that she was so behind on the demo. I didn't think she did that bad, but mm-hmm. I mean, the demo was definitely not with the doors. I mean, your marketing and demos are, are very crude sometimes, but the, the demo is not exactly uh, what it is, you know, because, and at the, also I forgot to mention that Rick Manzarek and Jim Manzarek are in there. After this, they quit. They said, Hey, mm-hmm. this isn't working out. You know, Jim's over, I think Jim's lyrics are partially over the head. Maybe, you know, putting go insane on a demo is, is <laughs> I don't know what you expect. Like that's a very mm-hmm. odd song to try to sell to a record company, record execs. But they leave the band. That's when Robbie sort of scoops in. And on that first practice at Hank uh, Olgan's little little rented shack that he has, Robbie pulls out the bottleneck slot. And, and just Jim wants to put it on every track. But Ray was very dismissive of uh, – it's one of the interesting things in, in his book. He's very d- dismissive of the Stones. He talks about how they're just a blues band. Anybody can play the blues. And maybe in 65, whenever this is, maybe that's more true. Um, I still think that the Stones are a little bit more – I'm more of a Beatles guy, Beatles guy myself, personally. Hmm. 
But I think the Stones have more to offer than what Ray is 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 saying. But it always seems like Ray and John talk about they don't talk about hey can we be like the Beatles? They always compared themselves to the Stones. And we get back to this in 68 at the Hollywood Bowl, which I want to have you on for that too, <laughs> where, you know, we, we, you know, I don't want to go far too far off track, but Mick sit in the front row with Pamela Corson in his lap and all this stuff. Yeah. So maybe throws Jim off, but there's a, a, a natural born rivalry, maybe even more so than the Stones and the Beatles, but maybe more undersung, maybe. Yeah, I think that uh, the press certainly wanted to call the doors the American Stones, and they did yeah. quite frequently. I think what would be interesting. And and I maybe if I would have had more time and and more space to do it in the book, what would be interesting is to look at what was locally being played in '65 that was California based. Like, if you think of, say, you know, the Annette Funicello, you know, uh, Frankie Frankie yeah. Avalon, the the beach blanket bingo. That's a game for me and you now. Yeah, let's give it a whirl. Beach blanket, bingo. Beach blanket, bingo. And like yeah, the yeah. Elvis uh, West Coast movies. I need a girl to make my life worth living. Yes, I'm girl happy. Yes, I'm girl happy. Girl happy. Can't you see? And you think about the music then that was popular and then think about what's what the door how far the doors are away from that that may have influenced the way that they recorded that demo because they were playing music like the things you know beach beach blanket bingo and stuff the bongos and all that you know hawaiian influence and california influence mexican influence more than rock because rock has not fully caught on certainly the demo is is off because there's no krieger i mean you can't have the door sound without robbie krieger and that's hugely important so i think interesting things were happening and there's probably you know hopefully there's some master student out there who's going to write their master's thesis on like what was going on in california and like a three month period or six month period um, musically that'll give us some insight into, into what the doors were hearing, you know, the guys individually, how, how do you go from Louie Louie to, you know, this is the end, yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So I think there's still a lot to be explored, but, but uh, you, you've hit on so many of the, the key points and, and it's, it's such an interesting, I think the big point for today is, we could probably counterfactual the entire doors, yeah, you know, yeah. from mid 65, maybe even earlier when they're in college, maybe. So we're talking there, you know, Jim's senior year of college through uh, the debut album coming out. And we could just remix that entire era. Probably if we dug deep enough, you know, yeah. <laughs> we should get a team on it. Like, uh, like make our own doors, Wikipedia to, to like excavate that. Oh era. yeah. Yeah. I'm all for that. I think, I think one place, I would be remiss, and this is going to be us wrapping up this podcast. I know that we've went a couple minutes over, but I just want to, something I think it's important and something I just sort of now realized, it seems like the the point that sort of is the sticking point with each member is their time spent with Jim. Ray has that first individual time with Jim at the beginning when they're the only two members. John yep. gets that time in the car whenever they're sh- he's shuttling back and forth. Him and John t- are in the car a lot together and they're talking. And then after Robbie joins the band, there's a... 
he gets in an instant, I think a, a, a motorcycle, you know, instant with some bikers and all this stuff. So they, they get my, Max Fink is the, the Kriegers recommend Max Fink is the band uh, attorney. And following that, Robbie's parents leave on vacation and he says, Hey Jim, why don't you come stay with me? Just me and you. And they're given the opportunity to sort of collaborate alone and work together. And I think this may be the most important period in the band's 65 history because it's at this time that they, he hears the songs of Strange Days and Crystal Ship. And Robbie actually already has words and some music, supposedly, uh, for Love Me Two Times and Your Lost Little Girl. And he even shows Jim some of the Indian influence. In Indian mm-hmm. ship, and then uh, Jim shows him the end. And we get that sort of working. You know, that's just something that um, I find very interesting that the the that I think the point where everybody said they're in is the individual time with Jim. Is that yeah. I think I think maybe they're hooked originally. Hey, I like his lyrics. He's very mystical. Um, but when they spend a long time with Jim, it's like, hey, this guy's he's got something. And they eventually do sign a record deal with Columbia. Ironically, Ray and Dorothy get evicted for having <laughs> too many tenants in their apartment, but they get this. I think they move into uh four forty four nineteen oceanfront walk. And they're sat in the doors, all the band, they're like, Hey, this is a great thing. You know, we've been rejected a lot. This is sort of looking up. We had this sort of demo that really didn't go anywhere and then now they signed with columbia records soon after and the first sessions they get this new equipment uh you know with vox as a part of the deal and stuff and so it's sort of looking up from there and they have these small little gigs like we talked about but at the end of 65 i think if you look at december that night as soon as they finish with the kriegers that i think the group is at a better place than they are you know in late august of, of 65 you know, or even right after the demos come, you know, they do the demos, they're shopping them, they're getting rejected. It's almost like on a dime, it's sort of their luck starts. And, and I know it's not luck because we talk about those 10,000 hours and the 10,000 hours, I don't think encompasses just, Hey, we're in the studio rehearsing or we're in the studio space rehearsing, whatever that is. The 10,000 hours is the, the time together bouncing lyrics because a lot of times I think, and I, and I've been guilty of this myself. People think of 10,000 hours as you have to be sitting down with your guitar or with your instrument of trade, with your drums, to be putting in 10,000 hours. But, I mean, it's the time talking about music theory with somebody. It's the time sort of getting to know your band members, you know, getting that cohesiveness. And they spent so much time, you know, a couple of, you know, a group of four unemployed, which I don't know, Robbie probably had a lot of money. I don't know if John worked, but, you know, just for all intents and purposes, I think John was a student, so he didn't. Just these four guys with all this time on their hands, just spending time together just growing together as people because they're still molding, you know, their brains are being formed. They're, you know, it's molding their experiences and I'm sure psychedelics have a lot to play with that, but all this is happening in a vac in sort of a vacuum in Venice beach, California. And that's where we sort of in 65 on a high note with the doors. And I, and I would just add that that's really interesting about the time spent alone with Morrison. I, I brought that out in the book, but I didn't put it, together quite like that, probably because I just didn't think about it. But it is true. Morrison is a popular guy and and we could go forever on this. So I don't I don't want to extend too much. But Morrison's charismatic. People like him. They actually really love him. And he's funny. He's witty. He can be a crazy idiot when he's drunk, like any everybody when he's drunk. But probably you know, think of the most charismatic person you ever met times that by 10, that's Jim Morrison. So each one of these guys, they're falling in love with each other 
And that's really what makes this band powerful. And by by the end of 65, they know they're on to something. Yeah, and going into the counterfactual history, I think Morrison is so smart, you know, 149 IQ. These are some of the books that he brought over to Ray's house, and this is from a quote from Ray's book, Lot My Fire. He had only one box of selects. Among them were Joyce's Ulysses, Journey to the End of the Night, All of Arthur Rimbaud, A Season in Hell, etc., Kerouac's Dr. Sachs, On the Road, Visions of Cody in the Town and the City, Allen Ginsberg selected poetry, other beats, Norman Mailer's The Deer Park and advertisements for myself, Truman Capote's Other Voices, Other Rooms, Tennessee Williams' Plays, Carson McCullers' Reflections in a Golden Eye, William Faulkner's The Mosquitoes, Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, and F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. He also had an electric blanket and some expensive socks. Maybe he is... Going into the counterfactual history, maybe he has programmed himself to be able to be charismatic to certain people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's another just part of the mystique of Morrison that 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 plays into it. Man, Bob, thank you so much for joining me here today. Is there anything in particular you want people? Do you got a website or anything? I know you got your book. We talked about Roadhouse Blues. You have a book on Stan Lee. You've got a what is there a Kentucky Bourbon? Is that one of the books that I read? Uh, yeah, I wrote a book called The Bourbon King: The Life yeah, and yeah. Crimes of George Remus Prohibition's Evil Genius. And I would say, uh, listeners can find me easily on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Twitter. Uh, my website is just bobbachelor.com, and I'm easy to find. So if if somebody's interested and wants to chat more about the Doors or about some of my other books. Uh, I'd love to love to hear more. Um, so just appreciate the time and and love being on the show and looking forward to forward to our next discussion, which I know will be equally interesting and and certainly counterfactual. <laughs> certainly. I'm going to retroactively take a shot for every time you hear counterfactual. But yeah, this yeah. is an amazing book, an, a book unlike anything I think you'll see out about the doors. I would say that I've read 80 percent of the doors books out there. And this, and I don't think I've read anything quite like this. So Roadhouse Blues, Morrison, The Doors, and The Death Days of the 60s. There's actually an interesting bit about that I might st- that we have to save for f- the future, but we'll talk about later, we'll mention. <laughs> we can't say anything right now and, and some other stuff that's going on. I'm just real excited, man. I'm glad that Mark put us in contact. Mark DeWoodziak put us in contact. He's a great friend of mine. Mostly uh, we met through Kolchak, horror and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm so glad he, we, we got into contact, man. Uh, I really have enjoyed this book, and I really enjoy you being on the podcast, man. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it, too. Thank you again to Bob Batchelor. You can find his book at most major retailers, and you can go to his website, bobbatchelor.com, for news and updates on his future projects. You can also find him on Facebook by searching his name. You can find him on Twitter at Bob P. Batchelor. You can find this podcast on Twitter at The Doors Pod and on Facebook by searching Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined, which I used extensively in my research for this episode and the last stage. I also want to thank doorshistory.com and the Mild Equator for information used throughout the show. And another thanks goes to my new friend from Peru, Deirdre, for the isolated vocal and instrument tracks used throughout. You can find his YouTube channel by searching D-E-I-R-D-R-E for more amazing Doors content. Music from this podcast was done by Christian Corneo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. Hope to meet you back here in two weeks for a special interview with multiple members from the jazz fusion band, Sweet Smoke. But until then, 
keep the doors open and the music loud.